Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are now finished our series on Provence, and we are going to be starting a new two-part series. In honor of the double Ador, we are going to be dealing with Purim. I'm guessing you're not going to be telling the story of the Megillah, which we're all well, very well... A, a Megillah, but not the Megillah. <laughs> right. Because Jews across the ages and across the world have initiated Purim celebrations because of communities that came under threat of annihilation at a particular moment and were saved. They were often named Purim Katan, and since this year we all have a Purim Katan in our calendars, the first Adar 14th would be named Purim Katan, I thought we could link to others that have happened in our past. Now, Eastern Europe had its fair share For instance, Mezhborj in 1648 to commemorate the survival of the community during the Khmelnytsky uprising. Ostrog in the 1730s, which they held on the 23rd of Nisan. Kovna in 1783 for the community being spared during the Russian-Polish War. But I would like to start this series with one of the earliest ones, Purim of Cairo in 1524, when the community of Cairo was spared from the slaughter planned for them by the city's Ottoman ruler, Ahmad Pasha. Now, to give the historical context, Egypt came under... Ottoman control in 1517. Suleiman the Great was the ruler of the empire and to, so to speak, represent him in Cairo, Suleiman appointed Ahmad Pasha as viceroy. But Ahmad had hoped for more. He commanded the Ottoman forces during the siege of Rhodes in 1522 And really, it was thanks to him that the Ottomans conquered the island. So he expected to be appointed as Suleiman's chief of staff in in the imperial capital in Constantinople. But the Sultan appointed a boyhood friend to that position. And this made Ahmad Pasha resentful and gave him the impetus to plot a rebellion. He imprisons military figures in Egypt who are loyal to the Sultan and begins confiscating the wealth of of provincial officials for his own use. But at a more symbolic level, he instructed that it's his name which is to be used in the Friday sermons at local mosques. And eventually he actually declares himself independent from the Ottoman Empire and the ruler of Egypt. How come he had such a following? 
Well, as we'll see, it, not necessarily the case. There were plenty of people who remained loyal, but in those days you needed to know which side your bread was buttered on before you threw in your lot. Right. So the head of the mint was a Jew called Avram de Castro, whose family originated in Spain and who had strong connections to both the Jewish community and within government. The Pasha orders him to mint coins with his face and name on and not Suleiman's, which is an act of treason. So de Castro asked Ahmad to put the request in writing and then takes this written order to Constantinople, showing it to the Sultan to warn him about this rebellion. When the Pasha becomes aware that he'd been betrayed or denounced, he makes up his mind to take vengeance on de Castro and the Jewish community in general. Sort of, you know, Purim story coming into reality. He brings 12 prominent Cairoan Jews to his palace and demands of them 200 silver talents, which was an astronomical sum of money at the time, gives them a deadline after which, if the money is not there, the Jews of Cairo will be killed. And in order to emphasize the threat, he imprisons some of them. Now, the Jews could neither raise the money, nor would they assume that they could get through to the Pasha's merciful trait. So, as Jews do in, in times of extreme danger, they declared a day of fasting and of prayer and start gathering whatever money they could. They put together about one-tenth of the ransom and brought that to the palace, hoping that this would be accepted as at least a down payment. The Pasha's secretary saw it and said that the amount was an, an open insult, basically, to the Pasha. And therefore, the decree against the Jews would be carried out. But later on that very day, Ahmed was attacked by a group led by officials who were, had remained loyal to the Sultan, in particular, Muhammad Bey. And even though he survived that assault and fled, he was captured, brought back to Cairo and beheaded. And in secular history, it's recorded as the rebellion against the Sultan. But it became an annual day of celebration for the Jews of the city, the Purim al-Mitzrim, or the Cairo Purim. Wow, an amazing story. Yep. How long is it celebrated for, the Cairo Purim? Well, I don't know if anyone celebrates it literally today, but it was definitely still observed by Egyptian Jews until 60 years ago, in other words, while there was still a kahila in Egypt. Oh, wow. Still. On a, on a okay. specific day? Yes, absolutely. Does any documentation of this survive? It depends what you mean by documentation. Outside documentation, uh, travellers who passed through Egypt, yes, there's uh, accounts probably going back as far as the 1600s, but internally, they wrote a, a scroll, a Megillah, at the time to commemorate the saving of the community. The author is unknown, 
And it starts as the Megillah does, and it came to pass in the days of King Solomon. Cute. And, of course, it's related to Adara. Everything happened in Adara. And they, um, right there, on the 19th day of the month of Adar, the Pasha wanted to destroy all the Jews that were in Cairo, both young and old, little children and women. And on the 18th day of the month, the Jews assembled for their life, in prayer, in, in fasting and weeping, sackcloth. But Hashem brought his advice, his decree to nothing. And therefore, you know, in Megillah terms, Al-Kain, Hayyuhudim, Hayyushrim, therefore, you know, the Jews who dwell in Cairo took upon themselves and upon their children to fast on the 27th day of Adar and to read this scroll on the 28th day and to make it a day of feasting and Rejoicing. Amazing. So you're saying the decree was for the 19th, but he was brought back and killed on the 28th. Right, which is why, even though originally they had fasted on the 18th, since the 28th became the day that the decree was definitively sealed, because that's when he was killed, they kept that day as the day of celebration and the day prior to that as the day of fasting. It's similar to Tanis Esther, because really the fast of Esther in times of Tanakh did not take place the day before Purim. It took place in Nisan, because that's when Homon's decree came out. So, you know, you have precedent for it. Moving on to our other Purim cotton, I would like to discuss a somewhat known event, uh, but not known for its fuller implications and move from 1524 to events much closer to our day, in fact, less than 70 years ago. Pre-World War II in the Soviet Union, a Jew by the name of Shlomo Michaels was the director of the Moscow State Jewish Theatre. By the mid-1930s, his career was threatened because of his association with intellectuals, in other words, people who'd become victims of Stalin's purges. However, in World War II, Michal um, led a gathering of thousands of Jews in Moscow, in fact, an explicitly Jewish rally, aimed at raising funds for the Soviet war effort. And he supported Stalin in his fight against Hitler. In 1942, he was made chairman of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. And in this capacity, he travels around the world meeting Jewish communities to encourage them to support the Soviet Union against Nazi Germany and raising funds. Now, of course, this was very useful to Stalin during the war. But after 1945... Stalin opposed contact, any contact really, between Soviet Jews and Jews in non-communist countries. And in January 1948, Michals dies in Minsk in a hit-and-run accident. And it's almost certain that he was assassinated and on Stalin's orders. It's uh, worth remembering that Stalin was responsible for between 20 to 30 million deaths during his 30 years in charge, and the fact that the number ranges between 20 and 30 million, first of all, gives you an idea of how widespread it was, but also how the secret police were involved in most of this, 
and you didn't find the names published in a court listing, you just often never heard from or about these people again. And in the course of all of this, the Jewish State Theatre was closed and the members of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee were arrested and all except for two were eventually executed. It was a pretty difficult time for the Jews. And this is all after the Holocaust. Yes, it was a very tough period which people really know little about. And it gets worse because this spate of... uh, post-war anti-Semitism continued into the 1950s with the infamous Doctor's Plot. Um, Over a two-year period, from 51 to 53, a group of mainly Jewish doctors were accused of a conspiracy to assassinate Soviet leaders, you know, while they were treating them. And this was accompanied by continuous anti-Semitic write-ups, cartoons in the state's newspapers and the state radio, which also warned of the constant threat of Zionism. And um, many, many uh, Jewish doctors were dismissed from their jobs and arrested. Show trials were being prepared. And then an even more alarming development occurs in 1952, government discussions started about creating a solution to the Jewish problem in the USSR. After the war, was there not some global movement against anti-Semitism that would make these things impossible? United Nations, all these treaty signs. You have to realize the Iron Curtain has fallen and that in Eastern Europe, they did not discuss the Jews as being victims in the Holocaust. They discussed, for instance, the fact that six million Polish people were murdered by the fascists. The fact that three of those six million were Jews did not not figure. And you look at, you know, memorials, uh, the older memorials, there's basically no mention of the fact that they were Jews. So this was not discussed at all. Now, this ongoing uh, attack against the Jews was felt not only in the workplace and on the street, but even by Jewish prisoners who were already in the gulags. And I'd like to share part of the narrative of a book written by Rebeliezer Nanis, one of the many Jews imprisoned during Stalin's anti-Semitic crusade, where he particularly aimed his vitriol against religious or Zionist Jews. Now, Rabbi Nanus's story is captured in a 300-page book called Subota, which was very widely read maybe 30 years ago and has recently been reprinted. He came from a wealthy and prominent religious family in Odessa, and he remained true to his religious background even after Stalin closed all the schools, all the mikvois, all the shuls in in Russia by 1927. It was basically all over. And this Rabbi Nanus becomes active in the Jewish community. He met the Chofetz Chaim and the Rogotrovagon in order to carry out some form of Judaism. And of course, this becomes increasingly more difficult to do with the Soviet secret police and their informants everywhere. And therefore, in 
November 1935, he is arrested for his religious activities. And he's sentenced to 20 years in the Gulag for the crime of anti-communist activity. And in fact, until 1955, he will be a prisoner in various Soviet jails and slave labor camps. And these two decades became a tremendous display of Jewish courage under conditions of terrible human cruelty. Surprising he survived for two decades. Most who went through this did not. And therefore, we have very few accounts. Now, he had no illusions as to the brutality of the Soviets. Uh, he writes that when he was arrested, they placed him in a room in the jail where there were 30 men in rows, each of whom had a, a circle on the floor around them, drawn around them, which they were forbidden to move out of. They were all barefoot. Some had uh, open wounds with dripping blood and their eyes had an expression of absolute terror. They weren't given any food, and they were forced to drink huge amounts of water. And if somebody collapsed, they gave them an injection and stood them up again. So this was the first prison that he was in. This is even before his trial. But he made a firm decision from the beginning never to work on Shabbos. And in every prison in Russia, he becomes known as Subota, which means Shabbos. And you can imagine the NKVD tried to break this, but he remained faithful to his religious principles. And he actually says that this allowed him to live through the unbearable experiences of those 20 years. In fact, he describes his first Shabbos in a Siberian labor camp. He asked the commander of the camp not to work on Saturday, and he said he would make up the time and the workload during the other six days. So the commander brings two soldiers into the room and takes Rebeleza to the place where the work brigade had gathered in order to work. And the brigade supervisor orders one of the prisoners of this brigade, the prisoner was actually a Jew, to take off Rebeleza's coat and jacket and tie him to the top of the lookout post of the camp until the end of the day. Now we're in Siberia. The lookout post was seven meters high, and when the guards would stand there to you know, watch the prisoners prevent escapes, they wore fur coats, uh, felt boots, and even then they alternated every three hours because you couldn't take the cold any longer than that. And the wind up there, high up, exposed, was like a knife. Rebeleza was placed there, and they put a sign around his neck with the word Subota, Shabbos. You know, we sing in our Zmiris about, you know, Shema Shabbos, Michalolo, uh, we don't break Shabbos. This is real Shmira Shabbos. Yeah. And every so often, the brigade supervisor would come up to the post and shout up to him, you're going to freeze to death up there unless you agree to work. And suddenly, a soldier comes running and hands something to this brigadier supervisor. And he gathers most of the brigade together and they leave. They leave the camp uh, confines. Um, but the Jew who had placed Rebeleza up there was one of those left behind. 
and he comes running over to this post and he says, you won't believe this, but not far from here, a dam broke and the brigade was rushed over there to help hold back the water. And it's a it's a miracle because I can now bring you down for a few hours and bring you back at, you know, whatever nightfall before the brigade returns, because I can assure you by evening you wouldn't be alive otherwise. And he survived it. And that's just one of many episodes. Wow. Now, at the height of the Doctor's plot that we started by discussing, on August 20th, 1952, he had by then been in one particular camp for uh, seven years. He arrived there in July 45. And in the middle of the night, he's woken up by two NKVD men and taken out of the camp. No explanation given. They transfer him by boat to a small penal colony on an island which has uh, barracks, watchtowers, you know, surrounded by electrified fences. And he finds out that the prisoners in this camp are SS and Gestapo men, officers, people who had overseen the murder of tens of thousands of Jews in the Ukraine and white Russia, but they'd also murdered communists. And almost every one of them was originally sentenced to death and had it commuted to life imprisonment or 25 years. And there's a prisoner in charge of keeping the barracks in order. He tells this Robleza that if he sleeps in the barracks, the Nazis will simply slit his throat in the middle of the night. They hate Jews, and he is obviously a Jew. He's still wearing beard and pears. And they have nothing to lose, these Nazis. They're sentenced to spend the rest of their lives on this island anyway. And he tells him that his conditions will be even worse than the Nazi prisoners because they're not going to allow him to work. And that means he will only get 400 grams of bread a day and not 800. I'm presuming this is all connected to the events of the 1951 Doctor's Plot that you mentioned. So he doesn't know this at the time because he has almost no connection to news from the outside world. But yes, even Jews in the gulags are being selected out on Stalin's orders. There's a much bigger, broader issue here, because if he is deported from the camp, it sends a message to all of those people in the previous camp, especially the Jews, that either you toe the line or you get special treatment. In other words, they're not targeting one Jew. They are targeting any Jew who is not prepared to be part of the system. Any Zionist Jew, any religious Jew, uh, this uh, heresy, so to speak, needs to be rooted out and made an example of. And this will bring everybody into line, especially the other Jews in the camp. So he does not yet realize it, but he is part of this doctor's plot, so to speak. He tells this supervisor, who's a prisoner himself, that he his only crime is that he is a Jew, and that for 17 years they've been trying to break him, but he will die uh, with his faith intact. So the supervisor says to him that there's one thing he can do for him. He'll 
let him sleep in the barracks during the day when the Nazis have gone out to work and wake him up in the evening before they come back. But he will have to spend the entire night outdoors until five in the morning because he sleeps in the barracks. He will he will be murdered. So he's got no choice. And, you know, the first night he is um, behind the corner of a barracks in the cold. He can't move around because he doesn't want the guards in the watchtower noticing. The one thing they did not seem to have there were searchlights, but nevertheless, you could be spotted. And one particular day, before he could leave, he had been sleeping there during the day, and before he could leave in time, the Germans arrived back from work and they find this Jewish prisoner in their barracks, and they know what they're looking at. And the leader of the group calls out in German that it looks like we didn't completely carry out the Führer's orders. If this type of Jew is still around, they've probably sent him to our barracks so we can have some fun. This episode aside, the, the system continues for a few, few weeks, and then the winter approaches. Nights are even colder, and his situation is becoming increasingly more desperate. And then a, uh, a miracle takes place, actually a double miracle, really. One night, he sees a prisoner coming out of a side door at the back of the main camp building. And this person had gone out to check whether the pipes were freezing, because it's now becoming colder. This guy's in charge of the laundry which was carried out in that building. So Vlesa uh, takes a chance and goes over to him and says, you know, I'm a prison in the camp. I cannot sleep in the barracks because the Nazis will kill me. And this uh, prisoner invites him into the laundry room. And he tells him that actually he had been a ranking member of the Communist Party and a government official. But in 1939... He expressed criticism of the Hitler-Stalin accord about uh, splitting up Poland. Ten years later, this guy's brother-in-law remembered that comment, and in an effort of uh, currying favours with the communist, you know, with the communist regime, he denounces his brother-in-law. So the NKVD arrests him, and he is sentenced to ten years. But he was a graduate of a technology school and an expert in repairing radios. The officials in this camp needed their own radios repaired. So, you know, for their own benefit, he was given an indoor job. He was made the, you know, the supervisor of the baths. But his main job, unofficially, was to repair the radios of the officers because this is the middle of nowhere, you know, you can't send it in to be repaired if it breaks. And this part also will save Revelaza's life, because he could listen to radio broadcasts. And one night, in December of 52, they heard Moscow announcing the arrests of the Jewish doctors, and a long broadcast describing the crimes of the murderers in white coats who plotted to kill the leaders of the uh, of the Soviet Union. And it has all been started by Shlomo Michaels of the Jewish State Theatre, an American spy uh, who'd been working with the American Joint, the American Joint Committee. 
And now Blazer starts to understand that his, or suspect anyway, that his exile to this island has some connection. And literally a few days later, the barracks supervisor tells him to report to the office, and there's an NKVD officer there, a, a major. And in his book, Subota, he records the meeting as follows. It was evident from the first glance that he was a Jew, in other words, this NKVD major. He began with an examination of my documents, and then, apparently to gain my confidence, he asked me in Yiddish, how did it happen that they sent you here with the butchers of our people? He asked about my health, whether there were more Jews on the island, whether I had an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to hear the radio or read an occasional newspaper, and my suspicions were now confirmed. I answered that as an NKVD man, he must know that this island was isolated from the outside world and I hadn't heard a radio or seen a newspaper in years. So this major shifted gears and asked me, did you ever hear of Shlomo Michals? He was a true Soviet patriot and even Stalin respected him. During the war, he was in America on a Soviet mission collecting huge sums of money from Jews there for Jewish purposes in the USSR. They are preparing a major book in Moscow about Michals. If you have any memoirs about him, write them down and I will arrange to have them published in this book. This might even help get you released earlier. I realized then, he writes, that it was a miracle that I happened to hear that broadcast from Moscow. I continued my play of naive innocence. You know that I've been in prison for 17 years, totally isolated from the world. I didn't even know there was a delegation of Jews to America. Well, I'm leaving you my Moscow NKVD address. When you write, and you know what to write, you'll be transferred back to your old camp, to your old job, and it's quite possible that you'll be freed. At this time, Rebleza spoke to the major in Yiddish and said, Young man, stronger people than you failed to break me. If you were ever a Jew, then you should know that I don't depend on you, but on Hashem's kindness. And the major leaves, and Rebleza is now wondering you know, what's going to happen to him and what exactly is the story with this conspiracy. Meanwhile, the Soviet government was stepping up its effort against the Jews in general. On February the 23rd, 1953, Stalin is at his holiday dacha at the Black Sea, and he's shown uh, reports of the interrogation of five Jewish doctors, all of whom had worked at times, at various times, as doctors at the Kremlin. And they had now all been charged with attempting to murder Stalin. The head of Soviet's the security service, uh, Beria, told Stalin and the three other ministers there, who were Malenkov, uh, Bulganin and Khrushchev, that most of these doctors had confessed and admitted that they were working with enemies of the regime, including the international Jewish organization called the Joint, the American Joint Distribution Committee, which was set up in 1914, to help provide funds for Jewish refugees in, uh, in the East, on the Eastern Front. On the 28th of February, the last day of February, Stalin told Beria to arrange for public trials. And the trial of these Jewish doctors would be used as a general accusation against all the Jews of the Soviet Union and make it easier 
to plan mass deportation of the Jews to Siberia where new camps had been prepared. And this would deal with the Jewish problem in Soviet Russia. Well, still a couple of million Jews whose lives hung in the balance then. Yes, it was a very bleak future that they were contemplating. And this discussion with Stalin on the 28th of February continues into the night of the 1st of March until four o'clock in the morning. We know, of course, all of this from records subsequently. Stalin goes to bed at four in the morning. No one hears from him throughout the day of March 1st, and his staff are too scared to disturb him unnecessarily. By nine in the evening, they are alarmed, and at 11, his bodyguard went into the room with the day's uh, correspondence as sort of an excuse, and he finds Stalin lying on the floor. He'd obviously been there for several hours, and there was a copy of Pravda near him, he, they lift him onto a couch and Stalin tries to speak, but he was uh, incoherent by then. During the night, he has a brain hemorrhage and he was dead three days later, having never recovered. March 1st was the 14th of Adar, Purim, in 1953, when the reign of a modern-day Homon was ended just as the lives of two million Soviet Jews hung in the balance. Wow. Naitakya Purim Cotton then. This is this the real deal. Yep. A major Purim. And then in September of that year, so Khrushchev was officially made the first secretary of the USSR. He replaced Stalin. And three months later, Beria was imprisoned and killed for crimes against the state. And those who'd fabricated the charges against these Jewish doctors were arrested and shot. And on Tuesday, March 17th, 1953, Robleza Nanus, who's in this uh, Nazi camp, this camp with Nazi prisoners, was called to the camp office and told that guards were there waiting to bring him back to his old camp away from these murderous Nazis. And he is therefore one of the many Jews in Russia who is a beneficiary of this Purim of 1953. If you've read the book Voices in the Night about the Maislik family in Kiev, very similar outcome also on Purim of 1953. And when did he die, Reblazer? So he actually lived till the age of 99. Wow. After uh, all that. Yep. Yes. He leaves the prison camp after 20 years. Uh, he was in Russia for a few more years in a difficult situation because he was in poor health and he couldn't work. And, you know, a few weeks after his release, he no longer had enough money to buy foods other than bread. But as he himself writes, I felt very blessed because I was free in body and spirit and I could keep Shabbos and Yontif. And the thing is, you know, we know of refuseniks like uh, Mendelevich, Sharansky and others who spent years in the gulags. But in a way, it's incomparable to what he went through, because in the 1980s, the world knew about these refuseniks. And to some degree, they had each other, although their captivity was still beyond horrific. But in 1950, you were completely on your own, totally isolated. Oh, wow. Definitely makes Purim a bit more real when uh, when it's so recent. Yep. Is there anything special about the month of Adora, just for our listeners, why it's specifically chosen or why God chose it as a month where we 
so to speak, kept getting saved through history from these mass annihilations? Well, generally, the saving happens in a way that is hidden, that is not an obvious miracle, and that really is what Adar is. It's the complete contrast to Nisan. It's the very end of the year. Nisan is the one where there are many open miracles. Adar is the one where there are none. Uh, They link to each other when you link the very end to the very beginning. But when you go from the very beginning to the very end, it's as far away as possible. And yet at that time, if we maintain our faith, we are redeemed. Thank you very much indeed, Robert Hirsch. Um, next week... Next week, we'll discuss some other, a couple of other notable Purims around the world. Brilliant. Thank you. And as usual, any feedback, any comments, any critique can be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you.